2: With L.D., Will the Thrill, and T.J. 2
3: Hey guys, welcome to Rock and Roll Heaven, the podcast where we talk about the lives, careers, and deaths of famous musicians. I am your host, L.D., along with me for the ride, as always, is Will the Thrill. Greetings and salutations. You got beer you know, everywhere beer dude. a little
4: bit more excited than i had planned on uh um, um, yeah you're yeah. gonna have to clean that up <laughs> that <is> so- <laughs> oh, oh, <please. laughs>
3: i can tell you right now i can tell the origin of the beer i don't actually know anything about the beer or whether or not it's even good but we went to a place called mcleod's brewery and of course like going to a brewery i had to buy will a beer and so i got him what was called the Mysterious Seven. And uh, it's the anniversary beer for McLeod's brewery. So it, it
4: happens to be a anniversary imperial double mash stout.
5: Yeah, it's uh sounds pretty awesome. I don't normally talk until you introduce me, so that's why oh. I was just saying oh
3: okay, okay. I thought <laughs> Fair enough. I thought you were all right. And our storyteller for week two is Mr. TJ Two the Deuce. Oh, that was nice. That was a
4: good one. Stuck a landing.
3: Yeah. Yeah. So, what are you drinking, Ting?
5: <laughs> <laughs> All right, there we go. I'm actually, uh, I'm having a cocktail this evening. I
4: oh, hmm. wonder you. What was, are you that, was that a handsome Johnny?
5: This is this is a handsome Johnny. Yes.
4: I I, I could tell by the drop of uh, gotcha. something splashing into the glass. Mm-hmm.
3: Above, and, right? and for those
5: who don't, uh, for those who do not, uh, do not remember a handsome Johnny, the way you make it, it's a uh, half uh, ginger ale. It's half. Uh, vodka that you're not supposed to use, really good vodka, and you drop a wedge of lime in it from exactly six inches above the glass, but you do not squeeze it. I was going to say, it's pretty much an intact. And I don't, I don't understand why the, the lime makes the drink better, but it somehow does.
4: And I, I like how there's sort of a cap on how good the vodka can be. I love that there's a yeah, cap on like, how yeah, it's like, to drop the
3: lime from. <laughs>
5: <laughs> yes, well, I, I'm going with Wheatley's, so
3: is that like the equivalent of two buck chuck? I don't know.
5: It's, it's not, uh, no, it's, it's, it's pretty good. It's not, uh, I think the people who make it are the same ones who make Buffalo Trace whiskey. Uh, Buffalo Trace is quite good. Uh, yes, it is. So, I mean, it's not Nikolov or Vodka City or Heaven Hill or, or anything of that ilk that tastes it's not, like. on a plastic bottle. <laughs> that tastes like kerosene and ass.
3: <laughs> so, uh, okay. So. Really quick before we jump into this, we should say that the next couple of episodes are going to be recorded ahead of time. Normally, record them the week of, sometimes the day before the episode's actually supposed to release, and then I go into a panic. But we are actually going to be about four weeks ahead once we're done with this recording session. So I just want to give you guys a heads up that if anybody passes in the time that we're recording, don't think that we don't know about it. It's just we're doing this ahead of time, and T can tell you why.
5: Um, because I'm busy. <laughs>
4: <laughs> and there you have it. Yes. There you. go.
5: <laughs> yes, I am busy. LD is getting slightly less busy. I am getting more busy. And um, but I, if if anyone uh, of note passes, we'll of course still acknowledge it on our uh socials and whatnot.
3: Yes, yes. absolutely. Um, Mr. Will is in charge of the social media, and so oh, we will be posting. Trouble. Well, he takes care of Instagram, and my brother takes care of Facebook. I think Facebook is kind of like a three-part harmony for us. We all kind of throw stuff on there. But uh, Mr. Thrill actually does the Instagram. So, uh, yes, please know that it's not passing us by. It's just we needed to record because my brother is busy so um he's gonna be busy he's gonna be busy
5: yes i, I uh, in addition to uh, all my normal uh, duties i have a uh like 28 page special section i have to write by myself Good
3: <laughs> and Lord. that's not
5: fun so yeah
3: yeah so uh let's uh jump into part two
5: yes 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 okay so uh we are doing a five-part series on the great tom Petty. We didn't start at the beginning, though. This is not a sequential uh, storytelling exercise as we normally do, where we start at their early life and we end at the end of their life. We actually sort of excised his time in the Traveling Wilburys and made that part one because that was kind of something unique, really kind of in the history of music, I I felt like. um, Certainly a very noteworthy time. And so we actually took that and made it part one. So part two is where we're going to go back to his very early life.
4: So if you're actually just joining us now in the series, you can want hear this episode and go back. That'll totally mm-hmm. work, because I think you can probably listen to Wilbur's episode whenever you, whenever you please. I mean, it's sort of in its own time period, is what I'm
5: saying. Definitely. We will actually not end at the end. It, I, like I said in part one, this is we're very much pulp fiction in this mofo. Mm-hmm. We kind of start in the middle, then we go back to the beginning. We're going to end somewhere close to the middle again. It's strange, but that's how we're going to do it. And uh, so we're going to jump into this one. In 1961, Elvis Presley was in Ocala, Florida, shooting one of his early movies. Having the king of rock and roll in a small Southern town at that point was a big deal. So a lot of people were hanging around the location of the shoot, hoping to get even a fleeting glimpse of the man who was taking the entertainment world by storm. A man who was working on the movie brought along his kid and some nephews who very briefly met Elvis for one of them. That was a life altering experience. Now the 10 year old already liked music and art, but having an audience with rock royalty, albeit briefly solidified in that little boy's mind that rock and roll was his future and his destiny the name of that movie by the way which came out a year later was follow that dream that little boy wouldn't just follow his dream he'd run down his dream (sighs) his laid-back stoner image often hid the lion's heart that beat inside him he was a true rebel who wouldn't back down he fought record companies and won and along the way he not only met the artists who inspired him He became their friends, bandmates, and eventually equaled or surpassed them in stature. He wrote songs with Dylan. He spent Christmases with a Beatle. He helped get the birds back together and sang with Johnny Cash and Roy Orbison. (laughs) This is the story of Charlie T. Wilbury Jr., of Elroy Lucky Kleinschmidt, a former member of Mud Crutch, a forever member of Big Mountain Fudge Cake, and leader of the Heartbreakers, Thomas Earl Petty. Big Mountain Fudge Cake.
4: Well Big done. Mountain Fudge Cake. Are you not a fan of Big mm. Mountain Fudge Cake? He was drinking. I was sipping my beer. Yeah.
5: The cake don't sell out, man. <laughs> that is for sure. Okay. So the life story of Tom Petty does not actually start in his well-recognized hometown of Gainesville, Florida but rather one state to the north in Georgia in the early 1920s. It was there that a logger named Thomas Pulpwood Petty fell in love with a cook in a logging camp named Sally. The two eventually wed, but that was very controversial and problematic at the time. Sally was a member of the Cherokee tribe, and interracial marriage was not only taboo at that point, in most states, including Georgia, it was illegal. Oh, wow. In fact... When the two married, Cherokees were not even considered United States citizens.
4: Oh, wow. At the
5: time. Yeah.
4: Yikes.
5: (laughs) Now, apparently, a couple of guys began trash-talking Sally and interracial couples in general. A fight broke out, and during that, old Pulpwood allegedly killed one of the men with his axe. What? Holy crap. Yes. Old Pulpwood Petty whacked the dude with his axe. So... He and Sally immediately fled the state and took their twin sons, Earl and Pearl Petty, with... According to a story from Foundry.com, Earl, one of his sons, would present himself once they got to Florida as being 100% white to avoid being the target of racism. There were some neighborhoods who would not have allowed him to have lived there if his actual background was not. Oh, wow. Yeah. Now, Earl, an Air Force veteran who drove a candy truck, owned some small businesses, and eventually became a traveling salesman, married a woman named Kitty, who worked in a tax office. They had two children, with the first being born in 1950. He'd be named for both his father and grandfather. That, of course, was Thomas Earl Petty. Seven years later, a younger brother, Bruce, was born. Now, Tom had a wonderful relationship with his mother and said it was actually her that introduced music into his life for the first time. Quote, she tried to keep an element of civilization in the house to show there was more to life than rednecks, he told Men's Health. First of all, were either of you aware that his grandfather whacked someone with an axe?
4: No, he couldn't have spun uh, that on me.
3: Nope. No, I did not. I, I didn't expect axes to be introduced into a musical podcast, but here we mm-hmm. are. A- and
4: furthermore,
5: would that make him Thomas Earl Petty III? No. Uh, Tom, okay. um, his grandfather was Thomas. His father was Earl. So oh, they okay. just, they combined the two names that did, So he was Thomas Earl God, Petty. Okay, that's the combination. I thought it was the exact I, I was also not aware what, until I began doing the research for this, that Tom Petty is a, a quarter Cherokee.
4: That would stand to reason.
5: Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Because I mean, one of his, one of his, grand his, his grandmother, yeah. you know, was, was Sally was a member of the Cherokee tribe. But, uh, you know, again, Earl presented the family as being a hundred percent white because apparently at that point, if you were known to be Native American, there were certain neighborhoods you would not be allowed to live in, which is a ridiculous thing to think about, but there, but there it is.
4: Yeah, that's insane.
5: So Kitty, Kitty read to her son and played Nat King Cole records and the West Side Story soundtrack for him on a record player.
3: <laughs> ah.
5: Is that a good one? I'm not a, I'm not a, a musical soundtrack person
3: west side story number one i do believe that it won best musical at the tonys Mm -hmm. rita moreno was one of the first latin women to i think she was the first latin woman to ever win an oscar and as far as the music goes it is a classic just uh just as a side note for anybody who's a musical fan like me it's actually getting a revival directed I, i believe and produced by steven spielberg this December. So, guess what the whole family's doing at Christmas time tea? We're all Drink, going to drinking.
5: See- well, that, nope. that too. Yeah, nope. Drinking and avoiding your movie or nope.
3: you are you are going to go see West Side Story with me and I'm taking your wife.
5: Oh, just take the wife. Um, okay. So, he heard so he heard West Side Story soundtrack and he heard uh, Nat King Cole records.
3: If it's not uh, Tom Petty, why can not it be good enough for you?
5: I don't like musicals. I just don't care for them, and and just I'm not not a fan of musicals. I preferred Porky's.
3: Yeah, well, Hi, bro. Uh, if you get the dance of the gem and the Jet Song, and even you know one hand one heart, which I'm not a huge fan of, like love songs, but you can't deny that that's not a fantastic soundtrack.
5: I preferred Hot Dog the Motion Picture,
3: and that's in all my cool.
5: favorite it's, my favorite musical movie ever was break into electric boogaloo <laughs>
4: oh,
3: see this is why we can't have nice things kids at least you
4: didn't say
5: xanity
3: i mean at least you know that right. we're sort of related but uh right okay
5: so but anyway so his mother kitty played played music for him and, and things of that nature she encouraged his creativity and she was nurturing in pretty much every way his father earl was none of those things hmm. now if you have seen the old behind the music episode on time pity you will remember that his relationship with his father was mostly glazed over or, or almost ignored Earl was interviewed and he told a short and sort of endearing story that showed Tom's strong-willed nature about how as a four-year-old he said he wanted to go to town with his father telling him he had to wait till his mother got home not content to, uh, content to do so he went on his own which earned him a spanking Publicly, he was a charismatic fellow that had lots of friends, but Tom said that his father had a much darker side. Kitty would not allow Earl to drink in the house, so he would often go to bars. Mm -hmm. Tom said he would come home in a violent mood and beat both Kitty and his sons. Wow. Tom recalled having raised whelps all over his body at one point. Quote, He beat the shit out of me. You can't imagine anyone hitting a child like that, he said. Wow. So Tom said he never felt safe, would have a hard time actually believing other people when they talked about having a good relationship with their father, and would carry issues that wouldn't be resolved until he underwent therapy many years later. He basically tried to avoid Earl, saying, quote, I learned to absolutely effing disappear. I got the f away when he was around. Tom found a virtual, if not literal, escape when his family purchased their first TV set. Quote, that was my way out, he said. When he was 10, Tom had the aforementioned encounter that altered the course of his life. According to Ultimate Classic Rock, Petty detailed that his uncle sometimes worked on films, though he didn't specify exactly what he did, and was working on the Elvis Presley vehicle Follow That Dream. Quote, my aunt took me down to watch them shoot. I met Elvis very briefly. I was there when he arrived to come backstage. It was a really religious experience. It was very exciting. The place was going crazy, hundreds, maybe a thousand people in the street. Elvis arrived in the line of flight limos and did stop, say hello, and he shook Tom's hand. Tom said it wasn't quite like meeting Jesus, quote, but it was really close. <laughs> quote, it was very exciting, changed my life, really, because after that, I started collecting records and just went in that direction, Tom said specifically tom traded his slingshot to a friend for a stack of 45s that was mostly elvis uh but i think also a couple of little richard 45s oh wow that was the first step he was now losing himself in music and intently listening to records something he said that made him seem weird to both his family and other kids at school. The next step came in 1964, when the Beatles made their debut on the Ed Sullivan show. And, and it, isn't it weird to, to sit there and think that here's, here's little young Tom watching the Beatles, having no idea that one day, one of those guys was going to be a bandmate.
4: Yeah, the connections of, the, of that story are just unreal. And that was our first episode, of course, on the Traveling Wilburys, which you can check out.
5: Right, which and, and of course, George Harrison was a member of the Traveling Wilburys with Tom.
4: And my favorite Beatle, um, I do
5: Yep, your favorite Beatle. Um, but, so they made a very famous debut appearance on the Ed Sullivan Show in 1964. And that's when Tom went from someone who was a fan of music to thinking it was actually something he could do. Quote, my picture of Elvis was the American dream. This was a kid from the South who had broken all the rules, had become his own man who sort of looked like he did what he wanted, whether adults liked it or not. But that didn't look like something you could be to me. To be Elvis, I mean, no one's ever pulled that off. You'd have to be Elvis. You'd have to look like that, for one thing. That's fair. The Beatles, now that looked like something that could be done to me. They're self-contained, making music they wrote themselves, Tom said. And he actually said, it was funny, because he he I guess his family watched the Ed Sullivan Show every week. He said most musical artists there was a band or an orchestra behind a curtain. You didn't see them. You just saw the singer most of the time. So he said this, that was the first time that he'd actually seen the entire band. And he's like, well, there's just, there's four of them. And they're playing songs they wrote. And, you know, there's the guy playing the drums and there's the guitar player and there's the bass player and they're all singing. And they look like they really enjoy this. This looks cool. He said that was kind of of the vibe because up until then you'd see like Perry Como or somebody singing and it was great but you didn't see perry playing guitar or something he was just singing and there was an orchestra behind a curtain or certainly off camera uh, if yeah. nothing else
4: and elvis was obviously the focal point so
5: sure and and elvis would have been the same the leap to believing for the first time that making music was something he could do well came when tom saw the rolling stones the beatles though they seemed a bit more relatable to him than elvis were geniuses in his estimation. The song construction and arrangement, the harmonies, and the other things they brought to their records seemed too intricate and complex for a beginner. Quote, then you saw the Stones and you went, that I can do. They were grittier. It was rawer. They were playing the blues. It wasn't complicated. There wasn't a lot of beautiful harmony involved. It was sort of my punk music, Tom said. He started hanging out at a music store and begged his mother to buy him a guitar. She did, one that cost less than $30 at Sears. So that was Tom's first guitar.
4: Yeah, but again, he got $30 in, what is this, 1962, 1960-
5: yeah, this is about sixty-four. Yeah,
4: sixty-four. Yeah, I'm just going to pull up the conversion on that for those playing along at home.
5: Still probably not very expensive, but certainly more than
4: and more than it would be today. Yeah, sure. Just for those playing along, it's about wow. Okay, uh, it was about two hundred and sixty-two dollars.
5: Oh wow. Okay. And yeah. see, now he, his family was not well-to-do at all. Yeah, it sounds like so a so, blue-collar. So, so. So. 30, so thirty bucks was probably a lot of money to them. I'm sure. Yeah. Yeah, but she. So she did scrape together 30 bucks and bought a a guitar at Sears. Again, Tom had found a literal and figurative escape, engrossing himself in something he loved, music, while also avoiding Earl. Now, there was a guy who worked at um, a music store that Tom hung out at, who was actually only three years older than Tom. He was further along in learning to play, though, and was working there to build up store credits so that he could buy more equipment. That fellow would end up being known for a lot more than teaching some guitar lessons in a Gainesville music store. However, Don Felder would not only go to play guitar for a little band called the Eagles.
0: Wow! So, hey,
5: that's uh, I think about that. Your guitar teacher is a dude who was one of who played with the Eagles. It's an eagle, yeah. It's yeah. Don, Don Felder. Yeah. It, it was the the kid three years older than Tom at the Gainesville uh, music store.
4: That's insane.
5: Now he has claimed publicly on many many occasions that he gave a skinny bucktoothed young Tom Petty his first guitar lessons. Tom actually claims that that is not the case. He says that Felder actually gave him piano lessons at that store. Interesting. Yeah. Now in that same music store there was a kid about three years younger than Tom who was a fixture, constantly hanging out there. He remembers seeing Tom Petty and a few other slightly older kids that he thought were cool because of the way they dressed and because of their Beatles-esque haircuts.
0: Hmm.
5: He didn't speak to them, figuring they wouldn't really be interested in a kid like him. Just keep that little boy, whose name was Benjamin, in the back of your mind. Once the Beatles hit, Tom figured about 50 or 60 bands sprung up in Gainesville. Hmm. And, and uh, there are several other people who play a part in Tom's life who we'll be introducing shortly who said who all echo that they said they, we went from like there were two bands maybe in jacksonville <laughs> to the to the to the bit or, or in um gainesville to the beatles appear on the ed Sullivan show and there and like there's a band in every garage like there's 50 60 bands yeah it did music, i think
4: what um top gun did for the air force just flooded with new new
5: people absolutely because who wouldn't um have seen that and wanted to be in the air force <laughs>
4: <laughs> yeah well
5: so a lot of people did apparently enrollment went up
4: massively when that film. Oh, oh
5: did it really oh yeah mm-hmm. okay but I, I saw attack of the killer tomatoes and, and i wanted to be a farmer
4: i'm still trying to be a ghostbuster and i just can't get my break
5: yeah
3: you got his wife does it for you know funsies if you don't right ghost. no is there
5: is there is there ever been a, a better funnier more intentionally shitty movie than attack of the killer tomatoes by the way i just
3: room I don't think that was intentional. No, that wasn't
4: intentional. No, the Shack of the, the, the Kill Tomatoes is what, what it's supposed to be. Um,
3: probably Ghoulies. Gremlins? Gremlins mm. was great. Yeah, no, Gremlins is a masterpiece. Gremlins is an Oscar-worthy film. Hey,
5: Phoebe, how you doing, girl? <laughs> um, oh. Okay, so there's 50 or 60 bands that have sprung up in, in uh, Gainesville. Tom Petty was in a couple, but really started to get serious with one called The Epics. He was still having problems with his father at this point. On one occasion, Earl smashed a big stack of Tom's records. Oof. He'd soon be out of the house, but he wondered in a retrospective interview what made his father so mean. He offered a theory, but it does require an awareness of his time and place. Earl Petty was a military veteran who lived his entire life in the South. In North Florida where they live the primary pursuits and interests of young boys were sports mostly football and i'm gonna guess probably pro wrestling at the time hunting yeah. and fishing and we were pointing
4: out before that northern florida is the south southern florida is like new york
3: yeah, 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 with- yeah, yeah. we'll get into this later oh, okay yes, yes well
5: yes i say yes we will we, we will get there a little later in the episode okay. fair enough fair enough um his dad had once showed tom how to knock out an alligator and, and once upon a time swung a rattlesnake over his head to, quote, toughen up Tom or perhaps impress him in some way.
4: I feel like he's almost like a, a Gary Busey type character.
5: So that's, that's kind of what it sounds like. Yeah. But none of the things that interested most young, man, uh, most young men around him interested Tom. Quote, maybe he was disappointed, Tom told Men's Journal. I have this theory. I can't prove it because neither of my parents are around to talk it. Uh, to talk to, but, you know, I was really into the arts. I didn't have any interest in sports. I wanted to draw, go to the movies. I really liked clothes. I grew my hair long. And to him, that probably seemed gay. Hmm. Ah. So that's that's a theory that Tom had about why his dad was so mean toward him.
4: And if you think about the time frame, I, I, you know, I'm not going to justify that behavior. If you think sure. about the time frame, I could... I'm not justifying what Tom's father did. What I'm saying is right. that would be the response from a father of, my son is gay.
5: Right. In 1960 Correct. in North Florida from a military veteran who drank. You're right. Army. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I, right. Uh, now, Tom had to make money. So he had some odd jobs with the oddest of those being a grave digger. Oh, that is an odd one. Uh, which is, uh, uh, which is funny since that uh, kind of sort of pops up in one of his more popular videos much later, but we'll, we'll get there. I think in part uh, five, yes. He also worked on the grounds crew at the university of Florida at one point. Oh. Now there's a bit of mythology about a lime tree that grows on the campus that petty is believed by many to have planted. Hmm. It is in fact called the Tom petty tree, <laughs> but it, in multiple interviews I saw, he said that he never planted anything on the Florida campus and isn't sure why anybody thinks he planted this tree. <laughs> but this is, apparent, this is apparently a, a borderline shrine to Tom Petty on the University of Florida campus. It's this, it's this lime tree. But he says that, he said, I, I never planted anything. I didn't plant the thing. So I, I do not know how that got started. <laughs> By 1970, just before he turned 20, things were kind of played out with the epics. So Tom formed a new band. In this one, he would be singing and playing bass alongside a guy named Tom Ledden. Now, we've already had one connection to the Eagles through Don Felder, and here we have another. Tom Ledden's brother, Bernie, was a guitar and banjo player and a founding member of the Eagles. Wow. So this band with the two Toms called themselves Mud Crudge and they quickly began to distinguish themselves from other local bands, most of which were either jam bands or ones that played rock or country covers. Mudcrutch did play covers, mostly country rock, but they also played their own songs, usually ones written by Tom. Now, multiple interviews I watched featured people talking about how good they were even early on, and they often compared their sound to that of The Birds and The Flying Burrito Brothers. (laughs) Wow. Fairly early on, the band was in need of a new drummer. A local guitarist heard they were looking, and he very selflessly told his band's drummer, a guy named Randall Marsh, about the opening. This guy reasoned that Mud Crutch was really good, and they were maybe going somewhere, whereas their, quote, acid rock jam trio wasn't. Marsh and this guitarist lived basically in a shack at the edge of a field. And the members of Mud Crutch actually came out there to audition Marsh. As it turns out, that very day, Mud Crutch, Mud Crutch had lost one of its guitar players. So Petty and Ledden asked Marsh, the drummer who they were about to audition, if he happened to know anybody who might be able to fill that spot. Quote, well, there's this guy in the back, he said. So that guitarist, who described himself at that point as, quote, a geek with short hair, hmm. came out carrying a cheap Japanese guitar. That elicited eye rolls right up until the guy played Johnny B. Good. Hmm. When he finished, Tom Petty looked at him and said, quote, I don't know who you are, but you're in my band forever. Hmm. That was amazingly prophetic since the self-described geek with short hair and a cheap guitar was Mike Campbell. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Who nice. would be Tom's lead guitar player for the rest of his life. Yes, he would. That's pretty awesome. Yeah. Um, now, Campbell grew up i saw several places it sounded like his family moved around a bit and his father was in the military so that would figure but i saw panama city jacksonville orlando lot, lots of north florida locations and yeah. like tom he came from a family of fairly humble means also like tom petty his dad had been in the air force and mike was actually going to the university of florida he said on uh, something called the air force loan society which sounded like maybe kind of a GI Bill sort of a thing, possibly. It, that, that would pay the tuition for the children? That's that's what it sounded like okay. to me, yeah.
4: I, I guess so,
0: yeah.
5: Now, he'd grown up with his dad listening to Elvis and Johnny Cash primarily. At some point, he asked his dad why he listened to Johnny Cash so much. Quote, because he's singing the truth, his dad told, told him. Uh, that good. served as an excellent guide, musically speaking, for Mike, who would end up playing with one of his dad's musical heroes but we'll get there a little later. Funny little side story. So Campbell, much like Tom Petty, saw the Beatles on Ed Sullivan and decided he wanted to be a musician. So he started begging his parents for a guitar. So his mom ended up buying him one at a pawn shop for like $10. And he said, essentially, it was unplayable (laughs) because the strings were so far off the body of the guitar. Like he literally couldn't press them hard enough to actually play the thing. and he said, "Like, man, this is so hard to. This instrument is so hard to play. These those Beatles guys are really good. Like, how did they learn to do it? Like, I can't even play this thing." He said, "You could. You literally couldn't play the guitar." <laughs> but he sat there. He said, "I." He he said, "I tried and tried and tried. I literally played until my fingers bled," and it was the summer of 69. Wow! So there you have it. Huh? Which was confirmed to be—he got his first real six-string. He bought it at a five and dime.
3: He played it till his And then years later, Brian Adams would come out and be like, "Yeah, that is actually a naughty song." I <laughs> was going to say, "Be quiet, everyone! You're waking up the neighbors." Hey-oh!
0: Hey-o!
5: because that was the album. Wait, are we going to you know, now that you did one one joke like that? They're going to keep coming, man. We, we can't stop now. this thing we started. <laughs> Everything I do, I do it for you.
3: I'm going to, I'm going to punch you.
5: God, this is like heaven.
3: <laughs> if you guys, seriously, if you care about me, if you care about me, you'll stop this. Just do it all for love. Oh, okay. Nice,
4: nice, very good, man. It's who's gonna be sting?
3: I thought,
5: I was thinking that, I was thinking that uh, LD was gonna get mad and was, it was gonna cut like a knife in
3: just a second. <laughs> Um, oh damn i had that one now i'm I'm checking out (laughs) oh you're all fired hey t sorry to interrupt we do need to take a short sponsor break
1: does picking an outfit have you running a little too fashionably late we get it great taste takes time that's why drizzly the number one app for alcohol delivery has your back with the largest selection of beer wine and spirits delivered in under 60 minutes Convenience never goes out of style, so if you need to spend some extra time in the mirror instead of at the store, download the Drizzly app or go to drizzly.com. That's D-R-I-Z-L-Y.com today. And we are back.
5: And we're back to the life and times of the great Tom Petty. (laughs) Okay, now it's worth noting that one of the recent defections um, from Mudcrutch, I think the guitar player who Campbell was hired to replace, had enthusiastically painted the band's name in the shape of a gigantic penis on the side of his van a week before he quit. What was it <laughs> was it on the wall of the van? It was like on the outside of the van. So, he so it painted would be a... mud crutch, but he shaped it like a penis. Hang on, hang on, T. He's getting
3: something. What you're saying
4: is it was a wall penis.
5: <laughs> wall penis. I wonder if it was like a sketchy panel van.
4: LD is actually leaving.
5: <laughs> I wonder if it was like a sketchy panel van that had like an icy machine and a kiddie I pool.
4: Ho- I and really back. hope it was the kind of like people would live in in the 70s, you know?
5: Yeah. Um. But yeah, he painted mud crutch on the side of his van Before in giant letters around. and shaped the whole thing like a penis. And then he quit mud crutch. <laughs> I was going to say, did he quit or was he fired or was it, you can't fire he, me, he, I quit? He, he, this, this guy quit, as okay. it turned out. Okay, so the band ended up crashing uh, in that shack that uh, Randall Marsh and Mike Campbell were living in, which they dubbed, quote, Mud Crutch Farm. Hmm. At that point, there were plenty of clubs and other venues to play in locally. At one gig in particular, a guy who helped out the band with loading and setting up their equipment brought along a friend that he'd formerly had a little band with, that being the aforementioned young man named Benjamin.
0: Hmm.
5: On a break, the band came over and chatted with the two and learned that Benjamin played piano and the organ. Now, Benjamin liked the guys in the band, but said he was oddly intimidated by Tom Petty and Mike Campbell.
4: Who's intimidated by Tom Petty? By I Tom mean-
5: Petty, I know. Friendly as they were, um, he was intimidated by them. He sort of knew even then that the two had something special. A few days later, uh, the friend told Benjamin that the band had liked meeting him, and they had said that um, he could come to their next gig and bring along his portable organ and play with them. sit in for a few songs. He almost didn't do it, he said, mainly because the organ and the amp were so heavy. That he almost just just said, like, I screw it. I'm not going to do that. But he said, quote, they must have been really bored. (laughs) Still, he decided to take them up on it. So he loaded his portable organ and his amp into his mom's station wagon. And he drove them to the venue. And he played with them. And everyone seemed to agree it sounded good and that he fit in. Now, Benjamin was a little bit different than the other guys. His family was wealthy, for one thing. His dad was a judge. Uh, and had previously worked for the State Department. Uh, Benjamin had gone to boarding school in New England, and had been forced march through piano lessons throughout his youth, and was now on home uh, now at home on break from Tulane University. He was told that he could sit in with Mudcrutch anytime he was home, and he did so. Eventually, he had an offer to join Mudcrutch after playing with them for an entire summer, and just before that summer. Um, I think he was finishing up his freshman or sophomore year at Tulane and Tom called him and Benjamin said, "Oh, what are you guys up to? And he's like, ah, you know, we just, we just played a set in uh, Coral Gables. How about you? And he told Tom, well, I'm, uh, I'm cramming for an economics final. (laughs) And Tom, he said there was a long pause. And then that Tom said, what are you doing? (laughs) And that ben, ben Benjamin said that he totally got the message, and he was like, "Yeah, what am I doing? Tom, why, why am I cramming for? Why am I cramming for an economics final?"
4: Makes me wish, like years ago, I had Tom Petty to
5: walk in on my life and go, "What are you doing? Who yeah, what, what are you? What happened? are you doing? Right." <laughs> so, um, he played. So he ends up coming home. He plays with them for that entire summer. He really liked the band and said they were legitimately good. Now, the only problem with him quitting school to join Mud Crutch full-time was going to be his father, who lost his mind and threatened to kick him out of the house if he quit college. Tom Petty went to Benjamin's house and had a one-on-one discussion with the father. Benjamin isn't sure what he said, but it changed his dad's tune. By the way, you're probably wondering at this point who Benjamin is. Every Tom Petty fan knows Benjamin, though they may not know him by his real name because he goes by a combination of his first and middle names, Benjamin Montmorency. Really? Ben Tench would play by Petty's side from then until the end, more than 40 years later.
4: I to say, him and Mike Campbell are the these days, right?
5: Uh, there's, there are others who would come and go, mm. but he, Campbell, and Petty would remain the core of Mud Crutch and a slightly more well-known band for a very long time. Before.
4: Which you may have heard of.
5: Yeah. Uh, got a little band you may have heard of that we'll get to here in a bit. Now, a regular place the band played at was a lounge called Dubs. I've read it described as both a bar and a bar slash steakhouse in various interviews, but what is unanimous among all is that there were naked people in there.
4: Huh.
5: Well, it was a topless establishment. Because Florida, everyone. It, because was it Florida.
3: Was a lap dance place like uh, that classy dude?
4: No, it sounds like a, I mean, a topless steakhouse is more like a, I mean, a place, a place you don't want to be. <laughs> <laughs> a <top of> steakhouse. <laughs> There's a lot going on there, and uh, I'm not
5: sure I want to be part Woo. of it. Okay.
4: Yeah, if, uh...
3: I mean, it feels like bad for everybody. Hey, baby girl,
5: it. let me say that rump roast.
3: <laughs> well, no, think about it. You have to have a really sharp knife for steak. <laughs> And then if they do a lap dance, like you really have to figure out your priorities. That's
4: your concern. Right. Look, if I'm ordering a steak in the same place, you can get a lap dance. I have a lot of questions. <laughs> right.
5: I'm not. I'm probably not worried about the the uh, quality of the cut of meat at that point. Yeah, um, if
3: it's in Florida, that's close to the ocean, so it's probably pretty good seafood. Right, and not
4: in this type of establishment.
5: <laughs> not in this type of establishment.
3: I want mean, to I make.
4: Price. I want
5: to make every bad joke, and I'm not going. To I care. am not
4: ordering a shrimp cocktail in a place like that. <laughs> nope.
3: I mean, but are onion rings okay? Or are you just staying away from if, all if, the look, food?
4: Look, if you want to do like the fried and pub food, you're probably at least going to get out with an intact colon. But uh... No, I bet you'd love to. Eat. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I'm even questioning that at this point.
3: <laughs> what <Which laughs> is a new band name? Intact colon. <laughs>
5: I think that was Neil Peart's first band. <laughs> I've never heard of a Naked Steakhouse. That would actually be a first. I'm not, I'm not familiar with ne- of Naked Steakhouse. <laughs> naked
0: Steakhouse
4: is a crazy <laughs> band,
5: Florida's the happiest place on earth. Wait a, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. There are ribeyes and boobies in the same
4: place. <laughs> I can get a New York strip
3: and hey, a stripper and a strip.
5: Mm. Yep. Oh, <laughs> uh, sure it's a, it's a New York it's with... a New York strip club.
3: <laughs> and it's,
4: it's about this time when Tom Petty walks in and says, What are you doing? You know, what are you doing?
3: <laughs> you see, kids, this is what happens at when you uh, record after eight PM. All of yeah. us get just a hair punchy.
5: Ooh, a little bit. Uh. Okay, it was a top
3: it was a topless
5: establishment got it okay. mud, mud crutch would play four sets a night though the first time that girls hopped up on stage and took their tatas out the band stopped playing and stared. well i mean uh... the first time he the first time he played there benmont technically wasn't even old enough to legally gain admittance to the club <laughs> but he was an employee
0: so right
5: still yeah. it was a training ground and the band got tougher and tighter and better from the constant play Mudcrutch would stage small festivals at their farm one of which attracted over a thousand fans now if you've noticed the timestamp, the early 1970s and the location north florida you might realize that there was another fairly substantial band present and yes Mud crutch did in fact at one point open for Leonard Skinnerd. No,
4: get out of here. Holy
5: Can god. you imagine being at that show? What a
4: double bill that would be. Oh my god.
5: You're so you're watching you're watching Tom Petty and Mike Campbell and Ben Montanch. I the core of a band we'll talk about in a while.
4: And and, and mind then, you, the intact lineup of
5: Leonard Skinner. The fully right.
4: intact lineup at this point. Uh-huh. hmm
5: Yep. This is, this is, this is, I mean, Ronnie, this is pre plane crash. This is so Ronnie's still there and everybody, Damn. but yes, they, but yes, at, at one point at, on at least one occasion, Mud Crutch opened for Leonard Skinner. In fact, Mike Campbell said that when Skinner hit it big with its debut album in 1973, it gave him some degree of hope and faith that the same thing could happen for Mud Crutch. Now, I saw a brief YouTube feature, and I believe it was called Swamp Chat, hosted by a musician named Steve Vest. He was in a band at the time called Magi, which was scheduled to play with Skynyrd in the first Southern Jam, a big outdoor concert. Now, he said in one episode of Swamp Chat that Ronnie Van Zant himself dispatched him to Gainesville, about an hour away from their home in Jacksonville, to find one more band to play at the show. He asked around, heard good things about Mudcrutch, found them playing somewhere on the University of Florida campus, extended an invite, and they accepted. There were apparently a lot of big bands at this, this uh, Southern Jam thing. You know, it was Skinner, it was Mudcrutch, Supri- uh, Magi played there, and Steve Vest, I think, ended up playing with the Allman Brothers for a while. Oh, Notably absent somehow was Manfred Mann's Earth Band. Oh, and
0: it is, bro
5: our federally mandated
4: Manfred Mann's Earthband reference of the podcast has been
0: satisfied
4: new york
5: strip club <laughs>
3: boobies
5: and ribeye <laughs> boobies and ribeyes. boobies and ribeyes. <laughs> uh, or you know oh. i guess i guess i guess if you're a little further down the financial scale like you know sirloin and ass <laughs>
4: Hey T.J., do you remember the time we were asked by LD to never do this podcast again?
3: For <laughs> <laughs> <loin> and I. <laughs> so, guys, we thank you for listening to the Rock and Roll Heaven podcast. It's been a good thanks ride. for listening to the
5: final ever edition of the Rock and Roll Heaven podcast. I'm pulling
3: the plug on this one. I okay. I'm shutting the computer down and going to bed. <laughs> okay, mean, everyone. All
5: right. Uh, okay. All right. Here we okay. Get. So Ben, ben Mutt's dad did allow the band to rehearse in his home, so long as they shut up for a half hour in the evening, so he could watch the CBS Evening News. <laughs> I
3: like how <laughs> that's. No, seriously, that was like our grandmother.
5: She yeah. yeah. Yep. Um, you didn't. You didn't talk during the CBS Evening News, and you didn't talk during her stories.
3: That was that was Dan Rather, and yep. and you watched that man and you shut up, don't talk, and her stories. It was The Bold and the Beautiful and the Young and the Restless.
5: Young and the Restless. And yep. young, and, and Judge
3: Wapner. Those are her stories. Oh,
5: yeah. And Doug Llewellyn.
3: Those are <laughs> her stories. If you interrupted her during her stories, you would see a wrath that you didn't think that a 900-year-old woman was capable of.
5: Was capable of, of mustering you brother, <laughs> brother, it was there.
3: yeah. Let me just tell you, she she, she could bring down the punishment of a hundred years. No, I believe (laughs) it. Oh,
5: she sure could. Now, it was in the living room of the Benmont Tench household that the band recorded its first demo, one of which became a locally released single. It was recorded by a friend of the band who had some reel-to-reel tape equipment set up in his van. He pulled up in front of the house, ran some mics inside, and the band knocked it out. I don't know if what we're going to hear now is from that crude first session at the coffee table. But since I've been talking for a really long time now, let's take our first musical break. And we're going to hear the first ever single from Tom Petty's band Mud Crutch. This is a song called Up in Mississippi. All right.
0: but tonight with a man she hardly Tonight, but there's a mountain boy that's gonna remember you. It's how you want all girlly hates to lose. But you did what you had to do. You know, I'm happy for you, but sometimes please think of me, there!
5: Okay, so what, what did you guys think of that one?
4: My first thought was with that guitar trade-off. That is very Almond Brothers.
5: Very. Very Almond Brothers. Very country rock sounding.
3: Lord, I was born a rambling man. I love the Almond Brothers. Um, that was
5: that was that was very country rock, indeed.
3: They they were picking and grinning. Yes. And, 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 and
5: to me, um, some some Allman Brothers and some ca- sort of uh, California country rock. Yeah, you can hear very, that, yeah. Very burrito brothers, very birds, um Little Marshall Tuckerish. Twin Twinge of the Beatles, too.
3: Can we just take yeah, a it second was- to uh, to appreciate? Can we just take a second to appreciate the flying burrito brothers? Yes. And that their name is just it's brilliant. So bizarre and fantastic, and I love it so much. It's not like the Eternal Triangle. Those people are no and Gra and, and
5: Graham was just I mean, what a force of nature that dude was. Influenced the Stones, influenced uh, everybody who started playing country rock pretty much in the 70s. Yeah,
3: essentially, yeah. We definitely have to cover Graham Parsons on this podcast. For sure. um,
5: um, The Allison Moore video, uh, Send Down an Angel, is is a Uh brief retelling of the life of of Graham. Yes. And real quick, uh, I I just want to say something. He's not thought of as a quote an all-time great vocalist. I love Tom Petty's voice. I do.
4: Yes. It's super unique. That's the thing. He's not gonna yes. hit those notes like Chris Cornell or Freddie Mercury, but he's got such a unique tone
5: to his voice. He does. And he can do a lot of things with it too. Yeah. He does the kind of trippy stoner, <laughs> you know, thing, the kind of slow southern country thing. But then you hear some songs where he can rev it up and sound very punk or you know, he can kind of do kind of a blues thing. I mean, he's, he's got it. It's very versatile, and then is you, as one to put it.
4: And then you hear, don't come out here no more. And you may have taken zero drugs. You will see wavy lines when you hear Tom's voice. Pretty
5: much. Pretty much. <laughs> now, after playing in clubs, on college campuses, at festivals, and in places where people freely disrobe, Tom felt it was time for the band to make a move a literal one. The band had made one trip to Los Angeles to drop off demo tapes at the headquarters of basically every major record label. Huh. They, had heard, they had heard back from London Records that they were interested in signing Mud There would be one significant life event for Petty before he left. He and his girlfriend of one year, Jane Benio, suddenly married. According to a story from everyrecordtellsastory.com, Tom actually jumped out of the car and tried to run away en route to the church for the ceremony. (laughs) His mother was the one who talked him into getting back in the car. Wow. The marriage was as sudden as a shotgun blast. And I might be using that analogy for a particular reason.
4: Yeah. (laughs) I'm thinking you are.
5: When they got to Los Angeles, Jane told Tom she was pregnant. Quote, she must've known back in Gainesville. My mother probably knew too. There was so much happening at once, I couldn't possibly know what it all meant, Tom said. So, Tom, they didn't, when they married, Tom didn't know she was pregnant. Wow. But I think Tom's mom must have, and Jane obviously did.
3: Oh, they did it for love. Did they?
5: Well, right before they left Florida for California, the band got a phone call from a guy named Denny Cordell, an English A&R man who had formed Shelter Records alongside the great Leon Russell. Mm. A former employee of Island Records, Cordell had already worked producing the Moody Blues, though he was only 30 years old. He'd listened to the Mud Crutch demo and told Petty he thought that they could be the next Rolling Stones. They would stop in Tulsa on the way to L.A. to meet Cordell. And at that meeting, they signed with Shelter Records. So things look like they're going well for Mike Crutch at this point. Now, there had been one major change in the band, though, with Tom Ledden having left the group. He moved to Los Angeles, played in Linda Ronstadt's band for a while, then joined a country rock outfit called Silver. Now, Ben Tench recalled in an interview with uh, the Sound Opinions podcast that the replacement for Tom Ledden was very good, but was also very different from the country rock stylings of Ledden. He was much more of a bluesy guitarist, which had altered the band's sound. They were still really good live, but Tinch and Campbell both said in interviews I watched that playing live is a whole different animal to playing in the studio. Tinch said that he recently found some old tapes of Mud Crutch live, and they were, quote, quote bloody good. His mm-hmm. assessment of the way they performed in the studio, though, quote, we sucked. We <laughs> flat out sucked, totally sucked, he said.
4: Well, they're used to playing in a shack at the edge of a field in Gainesville, so.
5: Right. So there's and, and, there. and at a place where, where, you know, people look at boobies and eat steak, so I don't, you know. <laughs> Campbell, in an interview, actually read from a journal that he kept at the time. He noted that on one day that he thought the band had what was to be its first single. The next day, he surmised they did not have a single. The
0: day, after that,
5: the day after that, he said that um, <laughs> they drank too much and got nothing done what yeah this was wow <laughs> wow ld's cracked.
3: if you go to that strip club you can get roast beef the good kind and the bad kind oh my god surf and turf <laughs> <laughs> oh god. you guys surf tuna oh,
4: this episode is gonna
5: have to be so edited <laughs> god. oh oh just make sure you just just make mine, sure mine's medium rare. I like it nice and pink. <laughs> uh, I got for a second, I got pissed because I thought like like something happened and we weren't recording anymore. No, we're just being no, assholes. Okay, I got you. <laughs> all
3: right, you mentioned about something about a strip club and beef just a second ago, and then all of a sudden that like like Arby's, but oh
4: no yes
5: i like my medium rare nice no, no. pink inside
4: don't bring up the idea that rbs can be topless that's just well, nobody
0: wins
5: <laughs> yep right. i like my women like i like my steak pink on the inside with a side order of fries <laughs> I, don't even know, I don't even know what the hell that means
3: i i, I mean don't order either one bloody as hell because oh, yeah, you don't mm. know what you're gonna
5: get yeah that's yeah that's yeah you don't want to you don't want go
3: there. <sighs> All right. That's, you You might want to start that whole paragraph over.
5: Hey, baby girl. Hey, baby girl. Why don't you come get up on my T-ball? bone? Uh.
3: Right. Um,
5: sorry. Um, okay. Mike Campbell, in an interview, actually read from a journal he kept at the time. He noted that on one day, he thought the band had what was to be its first single. The next day, he surmised they did not have a single. The next day, he said they drank too much and got nothing done. And the following <laughs> day, he wrote in the journal, quote, we suck." nice
3: was there anything else (laughs) do what was there anything else in the journal other than we suck i think i
5: think one day he just put we suck okay cordell was patient though and was sort of a mentor to the band as a whole and in particular to tom whom he really saw something in now growing up tom had listened to the radio a lot and bought records when he could but his family was also poor so he didn't have an especially big record collection Cordell, to hear Tom retell it, had basically every, every record ever made. Hmm. He would put them on and listen to them with the band. He exposed them to artists they'd never heard of and would explain to them why songs, some songs were, quote, real and others were not. He told Tom that every song he liked had a definitive groove with the drums and bass working in concert. Quote, you get that right, you make a groove, it's going to work, Tom remembers Cordell telling him. The band did record one single that was released and very quickly flopped. Hmm. After floundering in the studio for a while, Shelter began to have some unforeseen financial difficulties. A decision was made to drop the band, but to keep Tom Petty and produce a solo record with him. He would lobby to keep Mike Campbell, but he would be surrounded otherwise by studio pros like Al Cooper and Jim Keltner. Kench said it seemed sort of like Tom had been called up to the big leagues at that point. Now, Mud Crutch wasn't totally done, but they would not be heard from for more than 30 years. <laughs> Tom wasn't done with some of the individual members of Mud Crutch just yet either. You just heard me say that the plan was to have Tom work on a solo record. But if you're familiar with his career timeline, you know that the first of those projects isn't going to arrive for more than 15 years. Now, Leon Russell heard one of Tom's early songs and liked it enough to get involved in the project personally. Petty was mostly alone at this point with Jane and their new daughter, Adria, having gone back to Florida to live with her mother until things improved financially. So imagine his surprise when Leon Russell sent a white Rolls Royce to pick him up. (laughs) (laughs) Russell (laughs) told him, right. Well, well, I think they're um, in Los Angeles at this point, but he moved to
4: LA. That's right. Yeah, He'd
5: moved to LA at this by by now. Russell told him that his idea was to have him uh, work with, a different big-time producer for each of the tracks on his debut album. The first place he took him was the home of Beach Boy Brian Wilson.
3: What? Okay.
5: Who was apparently not in great shape during that visit. Yeah, he's, um, had, so, uh,
3: he's I, had a rough time. I assume that's right. probably during his, it's post-Love and Mercy time, so it's he's probably dealing with that audioid schizophrenia and a lot of, you know, drug use.
5: Right. So then Russell said, quote, hey, how about George Harrison? <laughs> so Leon Russell took Tom Petty to the home of the former Beatle, a visit during which Ringo Starr apparently dropped by as well. Because <laughs> Ringo Starr. They visited with Sly Stone, wow. with Bobby Womack, Jeez. with Harry Melcher, and with the Wrecking Crew. Wow. Petty got... Teddy got to watch some pros and legends and idols of his work in the studio, and he paid attention to what he saw. The course of music history was, in fact, changed, though, when a friend of Tench's gave him a call. Now, that friend was learning to be a recording engineer and had been allotted some studio time to work with for free. He knew that Ben Tench had written a couple of songs and asked if he wanted to come in and record them for free while he was learning his craft as a recording engineer. Tench took him up on the offer, but he didn't really have a band. So he called Mike Campbell and asked if he'd come play guitar for him. He called a friend from Florida named Stan Lynch, a drummer who recommended a bass player named Ron Blair and a few other people. That was the start of something big, though not for any solo ambitions of Ben Tench. He has one of the songs they cut to this day, which he dubbed, quote, Dreadful. Hmm. and lost another, which he said was pretty good, but was a total ripoff of The Faces. He sort of dubbed this little impromptu group The Drunks. <laughs> now, the thing is, Ben Mott said he'd never really sung into a microphone before and would be taking lead vocals on the songs that they were going to record for free in the studio. So he called Tom Petty, now they were still friends and on good terms, and asked if he would come by and give what he was doing to listen make any suggestions that he had on how to carry out vocals and maybe play some harmonicas as long as he was there. He said he would, and he did drop by. Within a day or so, Ben Tench got a phone call from Tom's wife, Jane. In the best way possible, some heartbreak was in everyone's future. Mm-hmm. And that is where we're going to wrap up today. Mm-hmm. Aside from, we, at the end of four of our five Tom Petty episodes, are going to have some lists, some rankings, discussion points, things of that nature. In part one, um, everybody wanted to give me a ball kick and effigy for coming up with the the horrendous, <laughs> tortuous uh, task of creating a Wilbury set list that included four songs, only four songs by each member of the group, and then four Wilbury songs and four uh, songs for an encore. That was nearly impossible. This isn't yeah, really... Yeah, so,
3: so, T, do you know what you're going to get for Christmas this year? What's that? A swift kick in the nuts thank you.
4: I changed my set list five minutes after the recording. (laughs) I I texted
5: Will today and said, is it too late for me to change my set list? It'll never be done. It will never be done. You know
3: that I will have a nervous breakdown if you ever said that, Then I would fly to South Carolina and just directly deck you in the balls.
5: Just deck me straight in the net, just straight in the guru sack.
3: Yep.
5: <laughs> okay, so this one isn't really a ranking or a list of of that kind. Th- this is more a question. Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers. We haven't actually gotten to the Heartbreakers. We're about to. We'll we'll dip our toe into that water at the very beginning of our next episode. But Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers. Do they belong in the genre of Southern Rock? Now, before I say anything, we have two friends who contributed uh, on our last episode, who are gonna who weighed in on this one as well. Now, do. Do one of you guys want to read what they sent? Uh, as far as their I, thoughts on this?
4: I would be happy to. One of them comes from a contributor from last week, and that is Penelope. Yours, we call her Penelope. Penelope. Uh, she was she did like the extra homework on this one. So I feel like I have to read this verbatim to do her justice. She says that Tom Petty and the Heartbreaker Heartbreakers, Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers are not Southern Rock. Their sound draws more from the British invasion. L.A. rock, Elvis, Johnny Cash, and folk rock like Bob Dylan and the Birds, and Le- then from Leonard Skerrin and the Allman Brothers. They definitely were influenced by Southern roots and the origins and that they, the things they sing and play about, especially on the Southern Accents album, but they prefer short to mid-length straightforward rock songs than 10-minute jams. And the music is centered more around telling a simple story or having fun, than around instrumental virtuosity i wouldn't call tom petty and the heartbreaker southern rock any more than i'd call rem southern rock which is a very interesting analogy yes
5: yep yep yes and a very good one
4: yes and that and that comes from uh penelope so
5: penelope from from, on the ball Uh, that that that's first of all that is that is spectacular and far um, more and, and, and than extre- extremely well-stated. Yeah, and again, okay, far so, more uh,
4: educated than my answer.
5: Yes. Um, so, Matt, uh, we have uh, – now, did your friend Mark contribute on this one?
4: He absolutely did. In fact, uh, he has been texting me constantly to get updates on the episode. He's really excited to hear the first one about the Wilburys in particular because, as I mentioned, his, one of his favorite musicians is Bob Dylan. Right. And uh, he's curious to see how that plays out. So his answer, again, I will read verbatim because I want to do it justice –
5: what will will your friend Mark uh, like, or, uh, like or dislike my Bob Dylan impression?
4: <laughs> uh, he has yet to comment on it, but I okay. we'll have a lot to say once it hits the air. Uh, <laughs> okay. He says yes and no. Okay. One of the things that made them so great was their ability to have one foot in the Southern Rock and one foot in the Laurel Canyon Sound. Very mm. interesting. Petty's choice of playing a Rickenbacker was very intentional, meant to splice him both visually and orally from the Birds family tree, i.e. Howie Epstein, but it was Campbell's masterful down and dirty guitar work, gotta agree with that one, overlooked by the rock intelligentsia for far too long.
5: I agree with that 1,000%. Mike Campbell is a f- phenomenal guitar player.
4: Yeah, and I don't want to get too far away from him, but I think he fits sure. in that category of like the Peter Buck, speaking of R.E.M., of just understated gets the job done and often gets overlooked. Sure. Yeah. Uh, in addition to Petty's twang and just his general Gainesville redneckiness, that's, that's a direct quote, that kept the Heartbreaker sound firmly rooted in the South at the same time, they could do it both. So we have sort of a split decision there.
5: Okay. Yeah. Okay. So let me offer, because nobody has firmly said, yes, they're a Southern rock band yet. Um, let me, now I, I, I'm i going to agree with Penelope and say that they're not, but let right. me offer j- just some um, some evidence that possibly you could consider them one. Okay. First of all, in the literal sense, they're from the South and they're a rock band. Fair but, but as uh, i think both of them alluded to rem is southern and a rock band and they're not a southern rock band no nope. um the b-52s are from georgia um they're a rock band kind of um i'm not exactly sure what you call the b-52 it's sort of a rock band and they're not a
4: southern <laughs> oh i hate that song oh my god that, song rock, song.
0: <laughs> that is like
4: for all of you listeners if you ever want to think about what you want to do to make me crazy. Tie me to a chair and play that song on loop and I will lose my
3: mind. Guess what you're getting for your birthday.
5: I have a feeling it's some iteration <laughs> of that. Well, but, but my point is the B-52s are Southern and, and a rock band, but they're not a Southern rock band. Hootie and the Blowfish, same. Right. Sure. Okay. So uh, they are Southern and they are a rock band. They would have had a lot of the same influences that Southern rock bands would have had Elvis Presley little richard Mm -hmm. um there are there are a couple of different little splinters of what i would consider southern rock there and part of that is there is a country vibe marshall tucker had a heavy blues vibe but also there were some heavy country influences that would come in in a band like that and we we heard mike campbell say that basically all he heard growing up was elvis presley and johnny cash the only things he heard tom petty loved johnny cash he was a fan of buck owens he liked uh, Carl Perkins, who's more rockabilly than country, but he's he was plausibly country uh, and, and he, they were influenced by some blues artists as well, which the Allman Brothers would have been. Leonard Skinner would have been people of, uh, of that nature. Almost every southern rock band had a piano or organ player. Uh, the The, the Almond Brothers very famously uh, feature a big a big organ sound as as part of the, their core sound. Mm-hmm. And Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers had one of the best going in Benmont Tench. He even on a lot of songs played a Hammond, which the, the Almond Brothers very famously uh, played on a lot of their songs. Yes. So that those would be reasons that. I, I would you I would say that maybe you could consider them a southern rock band. I don't think they are one, and here's why. Penelope they're part of it. Tom Penny and the Heartbreakers were not For the
3: love of God, de- over Penelope. This is fine. Penelope.
5: Penelope. <laughs> uh, she was right. There there was not a jam band mentality much with Tom Penny and the Heartbreakers. They were shorter, more concise songs. They didn't have a Mountain Jam or a memory of Elizabeth Reed or a Freebird in the catalog, really. Much shorter, much more concise uh, songs. That's a very good point. A lot of the Southern rock bands had a twin guitar attack.
4: Yes, Allman Brothers most famously.
5: Allman Brothers most notably. If you watch almost any live version of Freebird that you can find, there are three lead guitar players trading off. Three. Uh, now, Marshall Tucker didn't so much really, but 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 I, I, obviously the Almond Brothers did, and uh, Leonard Skinner did.
4: And then Government Mule was an offshoot of Marshall Tucker, correct?
5: Sure, definitely. Um, I would also say that maybe part of the reason that I don't consider them a Southern rock band is Tom Petty's vocal delivery. You could take because Southern rock to me is heavily tinged in blues. And there's almost a soulful gospel-like quality to some of it, and you could, But 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 the blues. I think it's it's bluesy. It's swampy bluesy rock. You could take Greg Allman and plop him down in front of BB King's band, and he would fit right in. His voice is that of a blues singer. Um, Ronnie Van Zant to a little bit lesser extent, but same thing. Um, Doug Gray and Toy Caldwell from Marshall Tucker Band, same thing. Mm-hmm. And Tom's delivery is is not like that. We we just uh, just a few minutes ago we we sat and praised his, his voice. We we're all fans of his vocal delivery, but it's not that big you know, whipping post kind of kind of a voice like like Greg Allman has. Um, and then I think that to me, what Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers are really, although there are and, oh, and one other thing, although they were influenced by a country, and you do hear little. Bits of country leaking out here and there. It's nowhere near as prevalent as it would be for some some other Southern rock bands like the Marshall Tucker Band, like the Charlie Daniels Band, like the Outlaws, people like that. Where, where I would actually put Tom is Heartland Rock. Okay. To me, he, he belongs right alongside Springsteen, Mellencamp, Seeger, Fogarty, that group. That's where he belongs. Your friend Mark, uh, I, I think it was, made a good point about Tom playing a Rickenbacker. Mm-hmm. it's that chiming, jangly, birds-like sound who, who was a huge influence on Tom, who he loved. That's what have,
3: he... Gonna have to fight you on this, T. That's, that's what, that's what,
5: that's to me what Tom, uh, that's what Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers sound like. They sound like Birds, Springsteen, Mellencamp, people like that, heartland rock. I don't consider them a Southern rock band. They're, they're one of my favorite bands ever, but I don't consider them a Southern rock band.
3: I, I got to fight you with the with the sound. Okay. I'm going to say that Tom Petty is not a Southern... Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers are not a Southern rock band. Right. I will say that they are indicative of the Laurel Canyon sound because they belong to the echoes in the canyon, hmm. which is a very, very distinct California sound very distinct California sound and that's that's the sound of Brian Wilson that is the sound of some of the people that he worked with you know working with Ringo Starr um there was even a documentary called Echoes in the Canyon which starred Tom Petty because he was part of that Laurel Canyon sound and I've actually when I was working at the animal shelter during the pandemic I was working very closely to that area and we were in the, the, the Echoes area, um, and it's, there's so much culture in that area that is indicative of what Tom Petty sounded like. So I'm going to have to fight you on saying that they're heartland music. I would say that they are more of a California sound.
5: But to me, there's, they're almost all-encompassing. Almost all the best stuff musically America has to offer, you can find bits and pieces of in their catalog somewhere. Mr. Wilde,
4: do, do you have to
3: weigh in on this?
4: I'm going to throw something here that may either be a wrench in the gears or a catalyst for revelation. Do you consider 38 Special a Southern Rock
5: band? Southern Rock Light is what I've always called it.
3: Okay, you say Southern Rock Light, L.D.? Uh, my answer is a three-letter word. Meh. Meh? Meh.
5: Because I think the crux
4: of the argument hinges on whether or not that band is classified as southern rock. I feel like Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers have more in common with 38 Special than they do with the Almonds and Skinner.
3: You just, I mean, T, I wish you could have just seen the look on his face. He has got the proudest eat my poop look on his face right now.
4: (laughs) I I do think that's the deciding (laughs) factor. No, really. If you think about the guitar sound, if you think about the tone, 38 Special almost bordered on that kind of
5: pop as they, as they they were more fresh. they were more of a that there were elements of southern rock in 38 special but it, it was much more pop than yes it was S- Skinner Almond brothers people like that which which there is as you know
4: a direct connection to Skinner in donny van zandt
5: sure definitely right so i
4: would say if you consider 38 special southern rock you have to put the heartbreakers in there
5: I, but it, I think that they if they qualify they're on the on the they're the on the bottom end of the scale and i'm not i'm not pissing on 38 special we're just we're right. talking about do they fit in the genre I, I mean they have a lot of songs i really like but mm-hmm. i i they're they're a, a, they they and atlanta rhythm section are very borderline cases for me
4: i think that's another good one is uh atlanta rhythm section yeah I where just, where do you put them
3: i don't think geography is indicative of sound when you put sound into a geography I think you you almost pigeonhole the artist to become something like what do you consider someone from Nashville? We also talked the about the, you, you talked about the Philly sound, the Motown sound. what, what is the, the Memphis sound? If there's a band that's from that just happens to be from Memphis, but they sound like Skinner, well well, that's about but they sound like let's say the Bee Gees.
5: Well, I'll give you, I'll give you, an, I'll, I'll give you something to, to uh, an, a better example for that. Let, let's just say like Ted Nugent. Would t- is, he the, is he the
3: Motown sound? I mean, he's from there. See, that's, that's kind of what I'm saying is, is that geography isn't indicative of- Well, but there were so many out. bands at
5: the same time from the South that had a similar sound. I mean, because you're talking about within a few years, you had Skinner, you had the Allman Brothers, you had the Charlie Daniels Band. You had uh, Marshall Tucker, The Outlaws. You had Molly Hatchett. And then 38 Special and Atlanta Rhythm Section, if you put them in, they're borderline cases to me. But there were a lot of bands with a very similar sound that were from the same area. That, that's why, how that, that, I think that kind of got started. And I'm just going to go with the old Supreme Court definition of pornography. Mm-hmm. That I can't define it. I just know it when I see it. <laughs> and that, that's how it goes with Southern Rock that uh, southern rock the the black crows were a great southern rock band i put them yes, in the category
4: are. absolutely for sure because for me it's about rooting your sound in what i would call the delta blues the the robert johnson and that's clear in Skinner. it's clear in the almonds cleared in you know even government mule
3: but he even ma- he mentioned elvis presley who was taking from r and but still the memphis sound so he was in both worlds. So he's got a toe in both worlds, but he's con- well, he, yeah.
5: He was definitely the nexus uh, in of rock worlds. and
3: roll. We consider him the king of rock and roll. So yeah, what- I
5: could play right, but I could again. It, what it goes back to is there. There are you take all the best that American music has to offer. I can probably find you a Tom Petty song that fits in each category somewhere. Exactly. Somewhere was, in the catalog.
4: He was so. I mean, he was pop. He was rock. He was alternative. He just. He crossed all the genres. Now, I would argue that Mud Crutch is Southern rock.
5: Now, And I was going to say, and I was actually going to talk about that later, but we can do it now. If you listen to, to the two, mud, well, the, two, the one Mud Crutch song we played earlier, the one we're going to close with, and then the two Mudcrutch Crutch albums that don't come out until uh, the 2000s, those are Southern rock. Those are Southern rock records. Clearly.
3: Okay, can I bring, um, you bring and, and, I, and I'll
5: tell you what makes the difference is bringing back the second guitarist, Tom Ledden, who has a very country-picking vibe to his playing, and it's, I really like it, but he he adds a different element. He but, actually pushes them into what I would consider Southern rock. You know, LD's argument aside, it doesn't sound like anybody really wants to go out on that limb and call them that. I, I no, will, nobody is four-square saying, yes, they're a Southern rock band.
4: I'm drawing the line at 38 Special. If you declare 38 Special a Southern rock band, then Petty and the Heartbreakers are going to follow in that. Track.
5: To, to me, to me, 38 Special, if they're if they're there, they're on the lowest rung, or they barely qualify. And just below them is Atlanta Rhythm Section, who I don't I don't really consider Southern Rock. they're we're not we're not saying that
3: 38 Special is bad. Please, you know, don't add us. No,
5: oh no, no. I like Atlanta Rhythm Section, and I like 38 Special. I like both of them. I just I don't know if I put. 38 Special, I guess I probably put them there, but just barely. And But Atlanta Rhythm Section, I do not, even mm-hmm. though they get lumped into that category. But it doesn't sound like anybody fully wants to go out and make the argument, yes, that is a Southern Rock band.
4: I think it's for our listeners
5: yeah. to decide. Yep. And well, we would love to hear from them. We yeah, uh, would love for them to weigh in on what we did last week, the set list, if they want to you know, go through the hell that we did.
3: um and then uh would love to hear their arguments on this as well absolutely all right are we wrapping it up i believe we're done all right so if you guys do want to take part in the conversation we would love to hear what you guys think so first of all if you think that we're awesome and you want to reach into your wallet and throw money at us we're not going to complain uh you can do that at patreon.com backslash rock and roll heaven Uh, follow us on Twitter. just like a waitress at dub steakhouse (laughs) <laughs> oh, i'm sorry to leave you with that image uh you can find this at twitter at rock and roll lt our instagram is rock and roll heaven lt our facebook rock and roll heaven pod still not saying our website and you can email us rock and roll heaven lt at gmail.com uh, if i said anything too fast it will be in the show notes and it should be at this point hyperlinked i do believe which hmm. uh is i think a new feature on the apple podcast app so if you're listening to that i think you can actually hyperlink now I don't know if you could always do that, but I think you can do it now. Hmm. Anyway, uh, make sure to please check out all the other awesome Pantheon Podcasts at pantheonpodcast.com. A proud member of the Pantheon Network. All right. And from all of us here at Rock and Roll Heaven, all of you out there at home, you guys have a great night. I pass it to Mr. Will the Thrill. Do you have something you'd like to say to the audience?
4: Ribeye and boobies. No, no, no wait. Okay, no, so no, I'm, I'm no. sorry. That was, uh,
3: don't that make was me out leave.
5: Okay. Uh Just, It's
4: been great, everybody.
5: See you next time okay so we're going to sign off from rock and roll heaven with that one single mud crutch release that <laughs> failed to find an audience once they had signed with shelter records we're going to sign off with a song called depot street
0: i live on the west side, by the county-